promise is that I will not post this with a picture of the Terminator when uh, when we post it. Uh, that is my promise to you. Can you introduce yourself to the lovely people uh, and tell us the title of the book that you have written? So I'm uh, Edward Geist, a policy researcher at the RAND Corporation and author of the book Deterrence Under Uncertainty, Artificial Intelligence and Nuclear Warfare. Uh, which was published uh, late last year by Oxford University Press. So I'm here as author of this book and not as a representative of either the Rand Corporation or its sponsors. This is a topic I've wanted to talk talk about in depth for a long time um, because I have sat, I've been in a lot of, been in a lot of rooms with a lot of researchers and a lot of people will talk or give presentations or have read a lot of papers that talk about how AI is going to change nuclear weapons. Um, and inevitably I ask like the follow-up question, well, how, and I don't get great answers. <laughs> um, and to my, like this book actually gives some concrete answers and kind of walks through how artificial artificial intelligence is going to change nuclear weapons and nuclear policy, uh, and what kind of new fears that we have uh, <laughs> kind of on the horizon. Um, but uh, I want to say that like the audience for this show is a tech audience, well versed in AI, uh, but perhaps not not a nuke audience. Um, so I want to get like a, I want to get a clear definition of a term up first because I think it's going to be important to everything else we talk about. Um, and I know that we could probably spend the next hour defining this, but can you tell me what deterrence is? Ah, yes. So this is heavily loaded. As I mentioned in the book, it's become what Marvin Minsky termed a suitcase word, where like much like the term consciousness or intelligence, where so much meaning has been laden into this term, and people just argue past each other because they're, they're actually defining it differently. Deterrence is very similar. It's the deterrence over the years has come to be used to refer to so many different things simultaneously has been invoked by so many different people to mean so many different things that too often in the discourse, it's effectively meaningless. And this is regrettable. But originally, like there's a formal meaning to it that strategic theorists have. uh, And there is sort of like the historical, more traditional meaning of it. Basically, the original meaning is the idea that you want to dissuade someone from doing something like some sort of aggressive action, and you want to dissuade them from doing it through the threat of punishment if they commit that action. Uh, So this is distinct from uh, other kinds of dissuasion. So, for instance, dissuasion by denial, right? Uh, While some people use the terms like, oh, deterrence by denial – uh, I personally don't like that because like it, it, it doesn't fit either the original meaning of deterrence or like the like the Latin roots of the term deterrence. It's like the the ter part is referring to like, like it's the same root as terrorize. Right. It's like this element of fear 
is uh, core to the concept. So dissuasion by denial, for instance, would be this idea. It's like, oh, we have splendid missile defenses. You can attack us and nothing will even happen. And you're not going to bother trying to attack us because it won't work. And therefore, you are dissuaded. I would argue that that is not the same thing as deterrence. Whereas opposed to just like, oh, well, you nuke us, we nuke you, and you will all be worse off than we are now. So why are you going to do that? Uh, that would be an example of what I would term deterrence. Right. The, the idea that kind of, and I think this may be shocking to people that aren't in the nuclear space, uh, kind of the, the policy, or maybe not even the policy, it's more primal than that. Like the... the the theory that kind of underpins nuclear weapons uh, uh, across the entire world is um, if one person launches them, they all get launched and the world is over. So no one launches a nuclear weapon. I know it's more complicated than that. I remember in high school learning about this, like mutually assured destruction. Yeah, yeah, mutually assured destruction and sort of like omnicide aren't the same thing, though. So uh, admittedly, like mutually assured destruction is also one of these terms. It's not quite as bad as deterrence, but it's gotten to be much more freighted. Like this originally had a political context and a meaning. Uh, so the today it's often used as shorthand for the idea that it's like, well, no one will start a nuclear war because they, they won't win it. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, historically, it had a more specific meaning that came out of the, the Kennedy administration and sort of analyses that were done. Originally, like there's this term assured destruction that was used by analysts in the Pentagon to evaluate different defense programs during the Kennedy administration. And so there is like assured destruction and damage limiting was the other one. And so there were basically there were like these sort of like cost benefit studies just like, oh, do we buy fallout shelters? Do we buy anti-ballistic missile systems? Do we buy additional weapons to try and destroy Soviet weapons before they can be launched? Uh, so on and so forth. And they do these calculations. And one of the things that comes up is that the only part of the damage limitation program that was cost effective was the fallout shelter program. But it turned out that Congress killed the fallout shelter program for reasons of its own with the result that there was congressional support for the ABMs, but you did the cost benefit analysis, even though the, the analysis that was done at the Pentagon on the, at this point, it's like, I guess it's Nike and then Sprint. It's like they're putting their finger on the like the analysis, trying to bias it in favor of the missile offenses doesn't work, right? So the like McNamara the starts talking about because basically he's trying to get Congress to stop demanding like additional weapons that don't appear to be cost effective, so he can focus on other things like say the war in Vietnam. And so the he, like he starts talking in public about it. it's like oh like we're like assured destruction, which is the idea that we want to be able after the Soviets throw sort of like everything they can at us to have enough left over to make sure that we can destroy enough of them that they will be very sorry. And so one of my uh, predecessors at Rand, who at this time had left and gone to the Pentagon, a guy named Alan Entoven, and he's the only one of these early nuclear strategists who's still alive. Uh, and so he told me personally the story is because he, he was like, oh, yeah, it's like McNamara asked me to come up with some sort of like definition of how much is enough. And he was like wandering, like walking the halls of the Pentagon. And by the time he finally got back to his office, he was like, like, oh, well, it's like there's this there's the knee in the curve over here where it's like you keep nuking the Soviet Union. They just run out of cities. And so it's like you just do make that figure the knee in the curve. And it's about 401 megaton weapon equivalent. So we're just going to make that the criterion and then. Uh, and so the thing is like in practical terms, like this is probably overkill both in terms of deterrence, but it was also 
the way that they went about assuring like 400 weapons delivered was also overkill. Because at the time, the U.S. could arguably deliver that after a Soviet disarming strike attempt with any part of the nuclear triad. Right. It's like the the submarines could probably do it. The bo- the missiles could probably do it. And the bombers, even though they were not normally thought of as being like an assured destruction force. This is back in the era when they had not just airstrip alert. They've got airborne alert It's like the the bombers are also highly survivable, if rather dangerous. That's the reason we stopped doing those uh, alert modes. Uh, so it's like, oh, well, we, we've got it covered. It's like we got suspenders, a belt and an extra belt. It's like like the. The Soviets are going to have to come up with like a whole lot of stuff in order to get around this, right? And so this becomes assured destruction. McNamara starts talking about assured destruction. People who are in favor of like uh, missile defenses, especially, but also civil defense, start talking about how this is sort of like, oh, well, this is defeatist. And a guy named Don Brennan, who co-founded the Hudson Institute with Herman Kahn, started came up with this term mutual assured destruction or mad, intending to make fun of this argument. Uh, that is like, oh, well, like everyone will die in nuclear war. It's like, you know, we should have defenses and so on and so forth. The funny thing, though, is that the people on the other side of that debate embrace the term uh, after a few years. And so then it became this universal notion of like mad being. Uh, so something that uh, the late uh, Robert Jervis emphasized and still needs to be emphasized is that mutual destruction it's a it's a fact, not a policy. And if it's defined in terms of the, like but these studies back during a Kennedy administration I was referring to, right? It's like, well, they hit a threshold in them for the amount of damage that they thought that the U.S. could take. And it's actually like by our quotidian standards, it's an astonishing amount of damage. It's, you know, it's like, it's like, can we build between like trying to go first or go for second. It's like between counterforce to try and destroy their stuff before it can destroy us and whatever defenses we can build, like bomb shelters and anti-ballistic missile defenses and the, like the, the air defenses to try and shoot down Soviet bombers and all of that. Between all of those things, can we get the expected U.S. civilian casualties down to some like remotely acceptable level? And remotely acceptable in this case could be, you know, like millions and millions of people. And the answer was no even in an era when the Soviets are not at parity, are still very far from parity. And so McNamara being, you know, this, I guess my take on McNamara in this case is that he's sort of like this bean counter, almost. It's just like he asked for these cost-benefit analyses. The cost-benefit analysis come back and says, like, well, like, the cost-benefit of this is, like, it sucks. It's like it's really expensive and it doesn't work. So we're just not going to buy it because you don't buy stuff that doesn't pass a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, so the... Like you look at this and if you use it fun to find mutual sure destruction, and then it's like if a nuclear war occurs and barring some sort of miracle or where the adversary just really screws up. It's like if you assume that the adversary makes like serious unforced errors, like nuclear war is winnable, but it's winnable because your opponent let you win, right? So like for instance, it's like, oh, well, like if the the like there's nuclear war and like one side is just as like you know their leader is just like oh well it's like i think this might be a false alarm and i'm just gonna like take that chance i'm gonna write it out and it's not a false alarm and so the leadership gets killed and maybe they don't have that much of a survivable deterrent and they don't have some sort of like survivable nuclear command and control this gets destroyed so whatever weapons are left afterwards like can't be launched anymore it's like well the aggressor in this hypothetical scenario can win at nuclear war it's like it's not magical thinking to think that quote-unquote nuclear war might be winnable However, all of that scenario hinges on the other side being, in this case, stupid or at least uh, cooperating with the attacker in a sense. Let me inject then artificial intelligence into this conversation. 
<laughs> and uh, I want to I want to be clear because it's because AI is another suitcase term, right? Um, and like on this show, we're typically talking about generative adversarial networks or large language models, and that is not necessarily what you're talking about in your book, right? Yes, right. So the AI is like as I as I point out, it's like it's another one of these wonderful terms that like among many, many other things, artificial intelligence is just a brilliant piece of branding, right? So uh John McCarthy, the, the pioneering AI researcher, you know, like when he was putting together like the summer uh workshop at Dartmouth in 1956 that became was sort of like th- remembered as the founding moment of the field of artificial intelligence. He was trying to come up with a term that would get more interesting papers than the last workshop he'd put together. And so he comes up with this term. And ever since, it is like it has been reappropriated by different groups of people over time. So in the 1950s and 1960s, the predecessors of the people, the people who were doing like the early neural network research, like uh, Rosenblatt, for instance, they're like, they don't call themselves artificial intelligence researchers. So like Rosenblatt actually explicitly says like, oh, like the artificial intelligence, what these other people are doing, I'm doing this other thing. That field was thought of as like pattern matching for a lot of this period. And then in the 1980s, there was like there was old fashioned artificial intelligence that, you know, you've got uh, knowledge engineering expert systems sort of uh, outfits like technology. You've got like the list machine companies like Symbolics. It's like they're on one side. They're like the AI people. And then like the early connectionist neural network people are like a different group of people and they hate each other. It's like they hate each other with like the fire of a thousand suns. And it's only later that the term artificial intelligence is reappropriated by neural networks. And today it's like increasingly artificial intelligence is conflated with uh, not just generative artificial intelligence, but these like large neural network sort of models. I personally prefer a more expansive understanding of artificial intelligence because I believe that the there's a lot of this older stuff that deserves to be revisited, much as like the 19... Neural networks in the U.S. are abandoned in the 1960s and 70s because the early neural networks, it was basically impossible to get them to do anything interesting. Then with combination of better algorithms and better compute that they had in the 50s, it's like they start being able to do a few things in sort of like around the beginning of the 80s. And then there's like this neural network renaissance. Uh, then the... Uh, so the much in a similar vein, it's like, it's like, oh, this like old timey AI from the 70s. This is like old and busted. And it's like, well, it's just worthless. And I, I look at this as, as like, I think a lot of these old, these ideas from like the 60s and 70s and the early 80s, like the symbolic AI, I feel like there's an enormous amount of low hanging fruit of taking those ideas and combining them with the modern techniques. It's like we've actually managed to inadvertently use neural networks to do some of the things that they were trying to do with knowledge engineering. Where it's like, oh, well, like the thing we wanted this giant knowledge base for, can we just like build an LLM like thing that'll serve as that knowledge base and combine it with these 1980s sort of explicit reasoning ideas to make like really powerful systems that get over the limitations of both of these two techniques? It's like I feel like there's a huge amount of low hanging fruit there that hasn't been uh, explored. That said, it's like the the particular applications I'm thinking about in my book are with the ones that you would use in order to solve the military problems associated with trying to carry out a disarming strike against an adversary's nuclear arsenal. Uh, and so depending on how do you go about that, some of that is like really quotidian sort of, it's like, oh yeah, we want like better noise filters for anti-submarine warfare, right? It's like, we want to be able to filter out oceanic noise and like hear the adversary submarine moving around through all of like the, like the whales singing and the, 
like the waves crashing and so forth in the ocean. So that's when like that's pretty quotidian is not Terminator. That's actually like enormously strategically important. Uh, and it's also something that is like with current technology, uh, you just you need the data. But if you have a big oceanographic operation like uh, major navies put together, it's like that's actually not a problem. It's like you go out, you put up a bunch of hydrophones, you collect a bunch of data and you use it to train your models. And the once you have those models, you can use them for like these militarily relevant things. It's not sexy. It's not a killer robot like hunting down surviving humans in a post-nuclear hellscape. But like, is this something that could like meaningfully change the the military balance of power between like the the U.S. and China and uh, Russia and so forth? It's like actually yes, because the the barrier to entry to some of these techniques it used to be that the U.S. Navy was so far ahead of everyone else, and like this, the technology is creating opportunities for new new rivals like China to really come in and like develop a sort of capability. And increasingly, it's also something that may be within the reach of like much more regional powers, right? Where it's like, so for instance, like Iran would be very interested in like making it harder for us to operate near them, right? It's like they would like to make it so the Persian Gulf is more hostile to the U.S. Navy. It's like, well, like there are opportunities for them to do things like that. And some of them are not particularly sexy. They're a combination often of really low tech, old fashioned things that people have been doing for decades or in some cases for centuries with the enhanced by the modern technology. Give me an example. So like in a lot of ways, I would expect the AI military future to look a lot like the, the what we're currently familiar with. It's just it's like, oh, well, we're using these technologies to enhance or in some cases to automate these processes that we've been doing for a long time. Give me an example of one of those. Right. So, well, to continue like the anti-submarine warfare theme, it's like, so the way that we historically did anti-submarine warfare against the Soviet Navy, right, was we're taking advantage of geography to hone in on, like, you have to start with sort of like a broad sense of where the adversary submarine is, right? Like, there's this there's this vision that some people have, it's just like, oh, what we do is we sort of like wait right outside of their submarine port with an attack submarine and wait for them to come out and then just follow it all the way along. And so it's like, I mean, in theory, that's possible. It's like, that's not, it's not that that's inconceivable. The way that we actually did it with most, uh, for most of the Cold War, though, is that it's like, so the Soviet submarines have missiles that can only actually reach the U.S. if they get out into the middle of the ocean. So it's like the, these earlier, what the, the NATO called the Yankee class submarine that's introduced in the, the late sixties. And so what happened was that it's like, well, the Soviet submarines have to leave their ports like in, like in Murmansk, basically. It's like they have to leave the Sea of Murmansk. They have to come out of the Arctic. They have to come down through something that's called the Greenland-Iceland-UK uh, gap. It's like they have to come through this gap and then down into the middle of the Atlantic. And then that their patrol zone is down there. And then when their patrol time is over, they have to go around and like go back to the Soviet Union, right? So that involves having to go at relatively high speed for one of these submarines for this long distance. And furthermore, it's like, well, the G-U-I-K gap is like, well, or G-I-U-K gap. Uh, well, that, all of those are like U.S. allies. And so, and also there's on top of sort of like this oceanic ridge, so it's like, oh yeah, we can just string a bunch of hydrophones out on top of there and listen. So what they had at the time, though, is like a bunch of guys like with headphones on listening to the hydrophones, like back in the 50s when they were setting this up. It's like, that's how it worked. And over the years, they're automating this more and more. Well, the sort of thing you might do today is like, OK, well, like we're going to replace all those guys with headphones or like the simpler uh, the kinds of 
algorithms we have analyzing this today, we're going to replace it with all this deep learning stuff and hopefully get like a big performance enhancement. Then the next phase is like, okay, well, once you hear where a submarine might be, you start sending various sorts of tactical search assets after it. And that might be anti-submarine warfare ships, also anti-submarine warfare planes that'll have different kinds of sensors on them, like magnetometers, for instance, right? Uh, and so you have all these sort of sources. It's like, well, it would be really nice if like we could take that and like save money by not using a manned vessel or a manned plane. We could have an unmanned drone with the same kind of sensors in it or maybe enhanced version of those sensors. It's like, like, can we build a like a quantum magnetometer that would be more sensitive? People have proposed ideas like that. Physically possible, making it into a practical capability might be very difficult, perhaps totally impractical. But uh, so basically, we take the old fashioned sort of like Cold War style anti-submarine warfare kill chain, and we just start automating parts of it as possible. And like some of those things, you might need kinds of autonomy that are either not currently possible, or in some cases, we might be able to build, but we don't want to do it because of the enormous strategic consequences, right? It's like, it's like, oh, can we... Because often the idea with the final part of the kill chain is like there is an attack submarine. It's like all these things here where the, the noisy sub submarine was coming. And then it's like, OK, and then we just dispatch one of our attack submarines to come and start following it around. And like there are people who say in the early 70s, it's like the Soviet submarines almost always had a uh, an American submarine tailing them by the time they're out pro uh, probing around in the middle of the ocean. Right. And so it's like, well, then you have to finish up the kill chain. And there were various, there were anti-submarine rockets. You know, like this is an era when there were a lot of like tactical nuclear weapons that were intended for this mission, right? So you've got like anti-submarine rockets off of surface ships. You've got anti-submarine uh, rockets off of attack submarines. You've got uh, nuclear tip torpedoes. Like you've got depth charges. You've got all sorts of things. And it's like, okay, could we automate that last part of the kill chain? Can we build like an unmanned robot attack submarine that under certain circumstances will just try and start destroying what it thinks are, are enemy targets. Right. And it's like, is that physically possible? Uh, yes. Is that something you could try to do even with current day technology? I think so, but we wouldn't trust it with that because going around and destroying adversary vessels, even if it had relatively good uh, friend or foe identification, which is one of the big, uh, sticky sort of parts of it. It's like, do we really want to entrust that kind of decision to a machine? No. Uh, yeah. And so like, that's actually current U S policy is that we don't want to entrust this kind of decision to a machine. And there's also not a whole lot of, there's less demand from the military for sort of like these killer robots type of technologies. than people often assume it's like, some of that is because the, you know, the, well, like professional military people, they think of themselves as like professional soldiers. They don't want to turn, they don't want to make themselves obsolete. That's one of the reasons. They also think of like the, they think of themselves as being necessary. And the, you know, in some cases, that's just sort of like being old fashioned. But in this case, it's just it's like, well, like the moral uh, question of, like a lot of people are just sort of icked out by the idea of being killed by a machine that made it the decision to kill someone on their own. Isn't the heart of most uh, like near miss nuclear stories that a human said, you know what? No, at some point in the kill chain. I mean, the there's never been an instant where somebody tried to push the button and the machine just didn't work. So in that sense, your your statement is accurate. Uh, that said, is like most of well, many of the near miss stories. I mean, the extent to which the near miss stories are actual near misses is very is debated among the community of scholars who study these things. 
The thing that I find so scary is that we actually don't know how close we came. It raises the question of whether there are additional near misses that we just totally failed to recognize, uh, we or the Soviets. Uh, because some of the, what are currently like the, the, st- the celebrated near miss stories didn't come out until years after the fact. So we could be sitting on near misses that we don't even know about that have nothing yes. to do with humans. Great. Yeah. That's one of the things <laughs> that I find disturbing. Well, fortunately, because of the way like the nuclear command and control is set up in like the major nuclear powers, the, because like the leaders of these countries have jealously tried to concentrate all of the nuclear use authority onto themselves. And we, they've developed like systems and procedures to try and enforce that in practice. Uh, it's the, the sort of like Dr. Strangelove scenario where like a general goes crazy and tries to start a nuclear war in his own. There were actually arrangements like that back in the early sixties that would have allowed someone to do something like that. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why the movie and like the other similar films and books came out. It's like, because this was like a realistic, plausible thing back then. In part because those movies came out and like, and, like sort of like highlighted the extent to which this was a terrible idea. We've made it increasingly so that it's like, okay, yeah, it's like the, like we have these systems that are designed to make it so that if the nuclear use is not authorized, it's like that weapon cannot be uh, detonated, like hopefully cannot be launched. Uh, and so because of that, the there is always, or in general, there's like a human at some point in the loop, but it may be just like, oh, well, like the president decides, right? And the computer says that there's like this adversary attack and the, like, like Mr. President is like, please decide uh, whether we do something now, we try and write it out, so on and so forth. Um, so there is, uh, under the present arrangements, like there is like a human in the loop who gets gets a veto. Uh, do, uh, say Russians think of it the same way that Americans do to the extent that we know how the Russians think of it? Ah, uh, yes. So there is the notorious Russian perimeter system, which is rather misunderstood, I think. So during the, in the 1980s, the, the Soviets were very concerned about their vulnerability to a decapitating first strike from the United States. Basically the idea that we could sort of like launch a nuclear weapon from close enough to the Soviet Union that would get very little warning and it could destroy Moscow and basically like kill the leadership. And they were very alarmed about it's like, well, what does this mean for sort of like, and this was solely like, it only came out after the end of the cold war that they were really were thinking this way. But uh, what they ended up doing is like, they built this system that is sometimes characterized as a doomsday machine. But I really think that that isn't right. It's like, I think that the, Based on my understanding of it, what it really is is an automated system for delegating launch authority that it is not normally turned on. So, like, instead of now, if, like, then the Soviet premier today, the Russian president, is like, oh, well, the radar indicates that, like, there are, there are missiles coming at us. And so, therefore, like, here's your spectrum of options. It's like there's, like, retaliate, like, launch under attack to retaliate. But it also gives the, the Russian president other options. Like, okay, you can turn this thing on. If this thing is turned on. If after a certain period of time, it detects nuclear explosions in the vicinity of Moscow and it can no longer contact the leadership, meaning that the Russian president has probably been killed, it will begin delegating launch authority initially to a couple of like super hardened command centers with like particular people who are presumably vetted for this uh, purpose uh, and that they will have the opportunity to use the sort of like uh, backup, sort of like uh, a way of re- like 
communicating with Soviet nuclear, or not so, then originally Soviet, now Russian nuclear forces. That's where the perimeter name comes in. Perimeter is the signal rocket. It's this thing is basically an ICBM, but instead of having a nuclear warhead on the top of it, it's got this transmitter that's transmitting as like uh, some sort of like launch signals, essentially. So it's like, uh, so in theory, under the scenario, presuming that it happens, is like you would assume that the if you turn the system on and the set of circumstances that are supposed to trigger it actually happen. So it's like it takes uh, nuclear explosions in Moscow and the leadership has apparently been killed. And like presumably like a lot of Soviet or Russian nuclear forces are not left in this scenario at this point. So because you would expect that there would be destroyed, try and decapitate the leadership destroy their nuclear command and control system, and then then try and like thin out their actual offensive forces as much as possible. It's basically a computerized version of uh, the UK's letters of last resort, right? After a fashion, although the letters of last resort are mysterious and that nobody actually knows what's in them. Well, no, you don't know until you open the safe, right? Well, you don't know until you open the envelope. Well, fair enough. If, Emily, real briefly. But yeah, it's like every prime minister writes a letter of last resort. And, like, I'm not even sure if they're preserved. They may be destroyed at the end of a, a prime minister's term. Yeah. Yeah, I need uh, to know a little bit more about what this is just to really make sure that I don't get any sleep tonight. Um. <laughs> yeah. So then the, the British uh, nuclear retaliatory force, right, is based on uh, submarines carrying nuclear missiles, right? And so what they have on the, the submarine in case that uh, Britain ends up getting destroyed and before they can get the like a signal off to the submarines about what to do, it's like before the prime minister can decide, uh, like there's no signal transmitted to the submarines. It just is like like the submarine puts up its antenna and it just like tries to find out what's happened. And then it just is like, yeah, Britain is gone. Uh, like there's nobody there to give you any commands anymore. Uh, so what they have for those circumstances is that the like each British prime minister writes a letter that is then placed in the safes on these submarines. And like only the captain has a key to the safe. And under those circumstances, the captain is supposed to take the letter out, read it and do whatever it says. In and the submarine. Might... This is like a, a safe inside yeah, the submarine like the with this letter. In the submarine. OK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they're supposed to read it and it might say like, OK, go to America or Australia. It could say it's like launch him if you want. Uh, it could say do not actually use the weapons under any circumstances. It could say anything, right? And it's not clear because the different prime ministers all get to write something and it doesn't become public. It's like it's not actually clear what the letters over the years have said since they've like, been doing. Go to Antarctica, start Britain too. Like it's it's like it could be yeah, it could be literally anything. It could be you know wild. go ahead and launch your nukes at whoever got us. Uh, yeah, and you, we don't we don't know, and I think they do destroy the letters. Do they still produce these? Do like current prime ministers still put these out? So, so far as I know, the the arrangement hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. All right, cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right, cyber listeners, welcome back. We were talking about nuclear war and artificial intelligence. 
So anyway, like Russia, like it's really funny because this is a good example of uh, kind of like we were talking about yesterday uh, in another show. We talked we talked about like the big AI stories coming out this year Um, rather than thinking about like a top down Skynet situation. You really got to think about AI taking over all these little tasks. Right. So you automate a process like this, uh, which is which appears to be. What, what you're talking like kind of what Russia is trending towards and what we're trending towards is finding the small tasks in the chain in like the, uh, in, in automating them. Right. Well, so in this case, it's, it's automated. It's automated in a sense that they want to have a secure ability to like try and delegate launch authority. But at the same time, one of the, the accounts like Bruce Blair, when he was started publicizing perimeter back, like in the early nineties put forward this narrative. It's like, Oh, well, like the system eventually will like start launching weapons on its own. And even like gave this lurid description of like, Oh yeah, it's like the mobile missile launcher will just stop moving despite the people driving it will like rate, like launch itself. That was just like absolute rank nonsense. Like that is not at all how these systems work. It's not clear where perimeter stops delegating launch authorities. Like, is it like, m- my guess would be that at some point it may, if enough of the system survives, it may start sending sort of launch them if you've got them messages to whatever, whatever submarines and mobile missile launchers and uh, ICBM launch control centers that are actually left, uh, leaving it in the hands of, so for instance, the guys like a lot of the Russian forces, like these road mobile ICBMs, right? And so these road mobile ICBMs, what they actually don't drive around most of the time. Most of the time, they're sort of like camouflaged and out hiding in the forest or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they're just sitting, just sitting out there hiding in the forest. And there's nuclear war. And it's like, under these circumstances where this would happen, you'll be able to see the nuclear war because like, you'll know what's going on because you can see the explosions. It's like, you know, there'll be sort of like flashes over the horizon and stuff like that. And so they're just sort of sitting out there in the forest and then it's like, okay, like, what do we do? Because like under normal circumstances, it's not like somebody in the, the missile launcher can go crazy and just go in there. And it's like, I stole the keys and like turn the keys and actually have the thing work. Right. It's like, they have to get a signal from somewhere, but it may be eventually that this automated system, if you kill the Russian president and then say it's like somehow like these ultra hardened command centers are also destroyed. It may be that there's enough of this system that it's survivable enough that at a certain point it'll be like, Oh yeah. Uh, we're, uh, like it just sends out the message. It's like, here's the launch code. Decide what you're going to do. <laughs> I would say that feeding into this uncertainty about how this stuff will work in the event of a nuclear launch um, is part of where we are now. Right. Like it's, it's d- d- deterrence through what is it? You Yeah. I mean, it's the title of your book, Right. And it is true that, like, one of the major themes in my book is that nuclear strategy is, like, really about knowledge quality problems. So both in terms of, like, trying to define what the problem really is. So, for instance, like, does the adversary really need to be deterred? It's like, does Vladimir Putin really wake up every morning and just, they just try and say, like, like, should I nuke America today? It's uh, because often, like, like formal discussions of deterrence actually talk about it that way. There's sort of this implicit notion that, like, every day they're, like, they're making conscious decisions. It's just this, like, it's like, oh, like, I really want to nuke America, but what will happen to us? And, like, it's like, oh, well, like, today doesn't look like a good day, but maybe tomorrow will be different. So it's like, I'll, I'll continue to revisit this. I, I don't think this is generally how it works, even with people who are, shall we say, not averse to violent aggression like Putin has demonstrated himself to be, uh, that... 
most of the time, like actually using the nuclear weapons in, in at least in an offensive way is, is unthinkable, but also unthought in that like the, the leaders actually aren't thinking actively about engaging in nuclear aggression. That could change very rapidly. And there's also always the possibility of sort of like a latter day kind of Hitler who would be risk acceptant and might even sort of have the attitude of like some sort of bizarre set of preferences. But the we have to grapple firstly with the uncertainty of it's like, what does the adversary really want? It's like, do they need to be deterred? Would we need to be worried about circumstances under which they would require like actual sort of like practical deterrence where they're actually having this calculation I was talking about? Uh, but there's also these questions of it's like, okay, well, if nuclear weapons are used, what happens? Uh, and a lot of this, the scientific understanding of this is not nearly as good as I would like it to be. It's like we know less from atmospheric nuclear testing than people often assume that we do. And some of that is because even back in the 50s when we did these, what in hindsight were these astonishingly irresponsible and dangerous atmospheric nuclear tests, the there were tests that needed to be done to sort of understand what the military use cases would be like that we didn't do because they were considered too dangerous even then. Uh, so our ability to like take the models that were developed back in those days using the incomplete data that we had and then try and extrapolate what like a serious nuclear war is actually going to look like, or even a very minor nuclear war, uh, we can't predict with like a high degree of confidence and maybe not even you know, like much confidence at all about like what will actually happen. Like if we launch this nuke and it goes off here, what will happen? It's like, where will the fallout go? How bad will it be? Will the blast effects like actually destroy the target like we are hoping that they will? Uh, there are a lot of uncertainties, even about the very basic scientific stuff. That's so wild to me that like we don't even know really if the effect that we want will be achieved. So, well, the way we normally deal with this in practice, for better or worse, is to just build a lot of overkill into the targeting plans. So the notion is like we want to exceed this probability that we think that this target will be destroyed. And we've been conservative in the sense of like assuming that like, oh, this adversary missile silo, for instance, is like we're going to assume that it can survive like this amount of overpressure when it may very well only be able to survive like some fraction of that. And and once you build that kind of conservatism into the targeting uh, uh, sort of procedure, it's like this is one of the reasons during the Cold War that we ended up with just like preposterous numbers of weapons because they're using this kind of math and you end up with ludicrous numbers of weapons there's the question of like okay well like do we actually get a better deterrent uh because we're doing it this way particularly because like this is all like very secret right so it's not like we're like it's like inviting like like soviet ambassador come in here into our targeting room we're going to show you how our numbers are aren't you deterred this is not how we do it right it's like all of this is like so secret that it's kept secret even from historically it was notoriously secret even from like the u.s civilian leadership it's like that the military was uh sort of like hoarding this for themselves. And when civilians came asking questions, they were generally sort of like given the runaround until like one, until the late eighties, this was uh, something that was done with like, in hindsight, what was not proper civilian oversight. This goes to a quote kind of at the end of your book that I really like uh, that is about both AI and nukes. One lamentable parallel between nuclear weapons and artificial intelligence is that both topics elicit an astonishing degree of magical thinking from otherwise intelligent people, including some genuine, uh, some with genuine expertise. Uh, why do you think both nukes and AI make people prone to fantasy? Part of it comes back to these knowledge quality problems. Like we don't, because we don't have great examples uh, of, uh, like, we don't have the artificial general intelligence yet, 
And we haven't had, I mean, there's Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but we haven't had sort of like a proper nuclear war. And so, but there's this intuition that either of these things could like these hugely important momentous events. Uh, both of them get at the, these issues of like the nature of humanity, like the, like the humanity either is to the extent with nuclear wars, the question is like, is like, okay, well, I like, could humanity sort of end. It was like, it's been the fear, even before nuclear weapons were actually invented. It was like, there was this notion of this, like, oh, you could build like these weapons harnessing atomic energy that might be this, like pose this enormous existential threat to humanity. Right. And then with artificial intelligence, some like their, their fears that's like, oh, well, like we created it, like it'll destroy humanity one way or another or lead to some other bad outcome. But there's also just this concern that or intuition many people have is like inventing artificial intelligence will prove that human beings are not special. That in fact, like either because just proving that humans aren't unique in the universe or proving that human intelligence was never particularly interesting or uh, important. Uh, And so like it gets at these sort of like primal concerns that is like, it's challenging our sense of like who we are as human beings, either because it's like, there's a intuition that people had for a lot of history that humanity basically couldn't cease to exist. Uh, and alternatively, it's like the, the idea that you could ever create something that was sort of human like in some sense was either considered to be impossible or some sort of like horrible demonic thing that you like arcane or arcane arts that you absolutely shouldn't trot on because they are like, like, it's trading on God's domain or something like that. It's a very existential kind of question, both of them. Yes. So even though it's not necessarily in, in terms of existential risk. Well, I mean, some would argue that 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 AI is an existential risk, right? Like that's the big push from uh, from the, a lot of effective altruists, right? Which are dominating uh, the field of AI and AI security specifically. That they, they think they do see it as an existential risk on par with nuclear weapons, including, um, I always screw up his name, the the less wrong guy. You actually quote him in your book a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, at least you tell. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, do, you, do you see AI as an equivalent existential risk? So one of the reasons why I'm hesitant to answer this question gets back at what I was saying a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Like, the thing that worries me most as somebody who does this for a living is that we actually don't have a great like our knowledge of how dangerous the nuclear danger is is so fuzzy that is this is like I'm trying to judge this is like okay well like the AI risks are fuzzier but it's like oh is it on par with nuclear weapons is like I'm actually like I'm actually not sure where the nukes fall right it's like we don't know it's like like it's not like I can come up with an estimate it's like like it's like someone comes to me and it's like it's like okay like uh, doctor guys please like tell us what percentage do you think is like what is the probability of nuclear war in like the next year or the next month or the next five minutes or the next century and it's just it's like okay well like I can tell you as a historian that it's like it's oscillated like I have intuitions about what it was like at different points in the past that might be wrong you know it's like before I was in this role I was a historian of these things it's like I got into it because I was interested in nuclear things and nukes were over and now. They came back. Right. Right. Uh, but this question, I was like, OK, intuitively, it seems that risk of nuclear war is usually assumed that the Cuban Missile Crisis is the height of the risk of nuclear war during the Cold War. There are these other moments like 61 Berlin Crisis was probably not as bad as the Cuban Missile Crisis, but seems to be a lot better than like an average, a lot worse than an average day. Uh, 1983, it's like it's it's very debated. And there are some historians who argue that the 
like the nuclear, the risk of nuclear war in late 83 has been wildly exaggerated. I think that I'm actually on the fence about 83. It's like, I don't think that we have good enough documents to get a good sense. But also the thing that worries me most is it was a historian studying this thing. It's just, just like, like, you can't tell from the documents. It's like the documents is like we have like the, the XCOM meeting minutes where we're like uh, Kennedy and his associates like talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it's just like, okay, we have that. We have a lot more Soviet documents than we used to have, but not the equivalent of that. And it's like, okay, like looking at all this, trying to align this with what we can reconstruct about like the actual posture of nuclear forces and what was going on. It's like there are all these question marks. It's like we just don't know. And so getting back to these AI questions that are much fuzzier and I look at it and it's like, okay, I actually don't feel comfortable making the comparison in part because I don't know what the nuclear baseline is. (laughs) And in the absence of the knowledge, this is another kind of theme of your book, uh, we end up relying a whole lot on popular culture. Right. And so in my book, I lean into the pop culture portrayals, firstly, because I know from experiences like this, these are the touchstones that everybody reaches for. It's like, it's not just, you know, people on the internet. It's like, it's also like, you know, you talk to uh, policy officials and like they bring up. They bring up Strange Love. They bring up Terminator. They bring up War Games. It's like there are these uh, these touchstones that everybody keeps referring back to. And so my strategy with the book is like, okay, well, I should lean into this. It's like because everybody knows these things. I if they're if they're right, I should just point. It's like, well, it's like in the movie, and then you can talk about it in the movie. And in other cases, it's like, okay, it's not really like in the movie, and here's why it's not like in the movie. Uh, so keep things uh, is entertaining and light as I can, given the rather uh, uh, depressing nature of the overall subject matter. I mean, but you're bringing up like, I have no mouth, but I must scream, which is not a very, uh, you know, cheery story. <laughs> like a lot of the story, a lot of the fiction is very depressing too, right? A lot of the fiction is nightmare fuel as well. Right. Well, like how many happy post-nuclear stories are there? Uh, I guess Star Trek is technically one of these narratives, but it's not normally played as such. It's like, oh, there's a nuclear war and then the Vulcans come and we sort of like learn, like unlearn all the bad stuff somehow. Yeah. So it's uh, what is one of the, the, the things I emphasize in the book, though, is that these stories resonate with us so much because they are compelling narratives, not because they have that much of a, a resemblance to real life. So, like, for instance, the idea is like, oh, well, the military really wants to build like a sentient nuclear war plan in computers. Like they want to build a Whopper or Skynet. Like in practice, the the real world U.S. military bureaucracy has very little interest in such a thing. Now, at least of which like they're both for the, the good reasons that it's like, oh, we believe that this should be the prerogative of human beings. And we have to have human beings overseeing this process at every point. And even if that slows it down a lot compared to what would have been technologically possible even decades ago, we're just going to do it that way. There's also the bad reasons, which is like, we've always done it this way with this bureaucracy, and we're going to continue doing it this way with this bureaucracy because bureaucracy perpetuates itself. Uh, but the reality, though, is just it's like, it's not like somebody's putting out a, like, a, a request for proposals to military contractors. It's like, it's like, oh, it's like, like, please, like, design us like a, like a sentient nuclear war plan and computer that will think about all possible, like, uh, nuclear scenarios and then, like, take o- like take over for the president in case of war. It's like, nobody is asking for that. Uh, but it's been the first story with the with that narrative that I was able to identify was published in 1948. And by 
the mid fifties, these stories are at, were already ubiquitous. It's like before the term artificial intelligence was invented, stories of nuclear armed computers run amok and stories of robots like fighting humans in a post nuclear hellscape. It's like these are common, well established tropes by the mid fifties. And they just continue. So it's like today we tend to remember them through their 1980s sort of interpretation. So we've got James Cameron's Terminator, which is basically taking it's like it's an extraordinarily well-constructed horror film, basically. Right. But it's taking these tropes that you find in these like 1950s sci-fi narratives, you know, like stories by people like Philip K. Dick and like turning them into this horror film about like this robot from the future that comes and is like trying to kill people. Uh, and then we have war games, which is both this combination of what were then very trendy sort of like you have like the video game theme, in the early eighties video game fad, uh, early sort of like home computer hackers, which was like, that was a novel theme in 1983. It's like, it's, you know, it's like, it's a stale trope now, but like at this point it's like, it's maybe the first portrayal of it that gets a wide audience. Right. Uh, but it's also combined with, the. Uh, early artificial intelligence research is like the the character of Professor Falcon is sort of like a cross between, you know, Thomas Schelling and like John McCarthy uh, in that is like, if you zoom in really close in the movie, I, I watched the movie very closely when writing my book, if you can tell. <laughs> it's like, if you zoom in really closely, it's like at one point Matthew Broderick character like goes to the library to try and learn about Professor Falcon and it's like, like he's re- like reading Falcon's dissertation and like in the microfish screen like shows the title of the dissertation and it's like, you know, like uh, like m- magazine articles that were like the movie makers dreamt up about what Professor Falcon had done early in his career and like the the movies of Falcon like doing research in the early 60s. It's uh, uh, And it's pulling on these sort of like early AI research sort of uh, both things that actually existed in real life at places like MIT and Stanford in the late 50s, early 60s, uh, but also like combining it with these other sort of visions now, the figure of the combined, like, artificial intelligence researcher and nuclear strategist that uh, Professor Falcon apparently was, that's something, it didn't quite exist in real life in that form, but it was real in the sense that the RAND Corporation in the 1950s was at the forefront of both of these things. It's just that the nuclear strategists and what were later termed AI researchers are not the same people, right? Yeah. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the book was you kind of walk through, uh, we've gone through boom and bust cycles of hype around AI uh, many times before, which I'd never quite uh, picked up on. I've always kind of thought of AI in this current moment. I've never really dug into the past. Can you kind of walk us through some of those? Yes. So the, how many, like there's this term AI winter that was invented in the eighties to describe the, basically the collapse of the export systems and list machine companies in that era. Uh, But there have been, it's debated how many AI winters there have been, but there have been at least two and maybe more depending on how you count them. So, you start at the beginning of the field in the, in the mid fifties. So what was remarkable at the time, like there were not that many people doing the, uh, this research, but the overall like average quality of like those personnel was, I, I think on average, like extraordinarily high. So you've got like your Minsky's, your McCarthy's, your Newell's, like uh, Simon, uh, like people like that, like small community. But what happened at the time though, is just like, well, 
they start like at the time it wasn't obvious that you could make computers do anything that remotely resembled cognitive work, right? It's like, oh well, computers like they just do math. It's like like they well, there were people who seriously argued like computers will never be able to play chess because chess is like this is a cognitive task and like computers by definition can't do cognitive tasks. So it's like mid fifties we start getting like real world game playing programs. We start getting the earliest sort of like artificial intelligence programs of other kinds. So it's like what was arguably, depending on how you define it, the earliest artificial intelligence program was developed by uh, Newell and Simon and actually run here at RAND. It was implemented by a guy named Cliff Shaw. And so at the time, it's like the, the delta from no computers and nothing remotely deserving the term AI to having getting these incredibly primitive vacuum tube computers to do something that resembled cognitive work. And so it's like you measure that delta and people like Newell were just as like, oh, like we're going to have human level AI like within the next 10 or 15 years, because look at this. It's like we've gone from nothing to something. And so clearly it's like we'll go from something to like finishing everything pretty quickly. Now, there was a self-selection effect, right, where people like like you have to be pretty crazy to do it today would be or at least pretty you have to be pretty confident to do what would today be considered artificial general intelligence research using vacuum tube computers or in the case of like uh mccarthy and minsky initially because they couldn't afford time on computers no computers they're just doing theoretical work best they can for several years before they actually get access to a computer right so the you take that you go from that and then it's like well by the mid 60s it's becoming clear it's like the the kind of progress that was being anticipated a few years before is just not like is not in prospect and so then there's this notion of like oh there's this machine intelligence research and it's kind of been a bust and so the government both the US and the UK government's trying to pull the money back that had been going to this or at least a lot of it then in the late 70s when there was a uh, it's mostly forgotten now, but what actually happened was that a the DoD had sponsored research on a voice recognition system that worked well enough that it convinced the created a conviction. This and some other sort of like expert systems work. So it created convictions like, oh, well, the technology is finally coming to a point where it might be commercially useful. And so in the early to mid 80s, there's this uh, like flurry of interest in expert systems and these list machines that were supposed to be used to develop these expert systems. and. By the standards of like previously, there had not been the extent to which there was an AI industry earlier depends on quite how you define it. Uh, what was it? There was a like there were some earlier companies that might be considered AI companies like Sistran existed earlier. But the uh, but basically, though, this is the first time there's like an AI industry is in like the early 80s. And you've got both custom hardware companies and uh, software companies. So within a few years, it becomes apparent like the expert systems have been like vastly overhyped and the list machines were also just like far too expensive, even though they're legendary among people who use them because they were like the ultimate hacker machines. Right. Uh, uh, but they also cost like more than a house. It's like a single user workstation that costs more than a house and was outdated within a couple of years. You wonder why the company didn't, the companies that made them sort of like got out of that business at least. So that there's that collapse, but it also coincided with the rise of neural networks. Uh, so neural networks are revived. Uh, and so there was also like briefly, there were like neural network companies. Uh, and so there is the, the brief hope that it's like, oh, there'll be rapid progress in neural networks. At the time, this is disappointing. It's like neural networks had kind of just fallen out of vogue in the late 90s because there was also this neural net winter or disappointment with neural nets. 
and it's only some, it depends on how you measure it. It's like, it's really deep learning's moment really starts in the early 2010s when you start, like you, the people really start leveraging the GPUs. Uh, so we go through this whole series of cycles and it's just like, well, there's AI, uh, there are these AI winter periods, uh, Arguably, there's like AI winter in the 60s and 70s, but people can't define like exactly when and it started and ended. But there's definitely the the AI winter of the 1980s that is the collapse of these expert system companies. And so there's the speculations like, oh, are we in for like another sort of like could another sort of like bus cycle occur? And the current moment is so strange in the sense that both the genuine progress and the hype are both so completely beyond what has existed historically and also perhaps most importantly the amount of money and human resources that are being devoted to the field are so much higher than at any point in the past that even if the overwhelming majority of the field is basically people trying to leverage sort of like exist they're just like taking your existing frameworks like Keras or maybe even scikit-learn and like I'm trying to apply it to their problem right uh there's still the fact that this is like, like, yeah, like all the smart kids trying to get into the field at once. Some of them will be sort of like looking under some of the, like the, uh, the un overturned rocks and like we might get this rapid sort of progress that people, uh, imagine. So it's, it's gonna, it's gonna be an interesting period. I think it's the, I'm, I also, if there's anything that I would listen, I drop in the history though, is like if I had to bet money, like, the field will probably be very different like 10 years from to now than it is today. It's like, I don't expect the current software approaches. It's like the whole current paradigm. I would not bet huge money on the current paradigm of it's like, Oh, well, we're going to have these enormous models that are so expensive to train and uh, run. And I, uh, that like the reason that I'm skeptical about that is just, it's like, like this is not economical under current circumstances. And it's like the current, approach to it's like, oh, we're going to solve the limitations of the models by making the models bigger. But it just is like, well, like the lines, like you're already losing money on the current model. And even if you're assuming continued progress on the the hardware side, it's like, it's not clear when those lines cross. It's like all the incentives are to making things that are more efficient, hopefully more modular. I think uh, like the recent, uh, the new Mistral LLM that'll run on much lighter hardware, I feel like is already like a significant evolution point towards the sort of paradigm I would anticipate. And so therefore we shouldn't bet too much either in terms of like companies would be wise not to assume that the future is going to look like the present. It's like, I, like I feel like the giant frontier model era may be very short lived because all of the economic uh, and other incentives seem to be pointing towards trying to get away from it. But furthermore, it's like we shouldn't set up a regulatory regime that is based on the assumption that the like at least even the like the for the intermediate term or even possibly the near term. It could be that as we were recording this, like the archive paper is being posted that like describes the new paradigm that everybody's going to be using like within the next year. Right. Because the incentives are so high. It's like these models, it's remarkable what they can do. Their limitations also shouldn't be. Like one of the themes of my book is that you can't reason with knowledge you don't have. Right. And the big question about these big models is what knowledge is actually in them? It's like, what did they actually represent? What if you can, like, uh, there's this fear that maybe these big models will do some kind of information fusion and will actually be able to, like, draw inferences that humans, because they don't actually have as much uh, knowledge in some sense, uh, individual humans at least, haven't been able to draw. Um and that's a, I feel like that's an open empirical question. The assumption that they can, I feel, 
that is not my intuition. Like, I feel like it's not the case. The current systems, for a variety of reasons, I think are actually not great at the kind of information fusion that people are afraid that they'll be capable of. That said, it's like, it's like oh, well, do, do I think it's categorically impossible to architect a system that would have those properties? Like, I don't think that's, uh, that's the case at all. And it could be that somebody has already invented that system uh, out now that all the labs are being so secretive and there's like a lot of work being done in various uh, uh, various corners. So, you know, it's like I, I wouldn't want to state that it's like, oh, well, like it's like, oh, it's all totally overhyped. You don't need to worry about anything. Uh, I feel like that's going way too far in the sanguine direction, but also this notion of just, it's like, oh, well, it's inevitable that it's like, we're going to have recursively self-improving AGI in a couple of years and it's going to destroy humanity. So I should just like sit around, like, I don't know, eating Twinkies or whatever you're supposed to do. If you feel like the world is going to end, and it's just like, I, I'm not, I feel like that's overblown as well. But like, at the same time, it's like, it's really hard to prove the negative that that's like the far out scenarios it's like like how can i prove there isn't going to be a nuclear war tomorrow right it's like they're probably like i don't think there's going to be but like actually can't say it's like it's like well i like because the, the simple reality is that someone like Vladimir putin can wake up and just as like it's like i think i'm going to start a nuclear war today and if his subordinates don't stop him he can do that <laughs> i feel like a great uh place to put our flag here at the end of the conversation is um embrace uncertainty and admit that there's a bunch of stuff that you don't know mm-hmm. right Right. It's like the the real I feel like both in AI policy and nuclear policy and especially in the intersection that my book is about, it's a matter of trying to manage uncertainty, both their own uncertainties and other people's uncertainties. And so the and also not to talk ourselves into believing that we know more than we really do. Edward, thank you so much for coming on to cyber and walking us through this. Where can people find the book? Uh, so it is available for purchase on the internet, although I should add the caveat that it is currently sold out and Oxford University Press is promising that they will be printing more soon. So it's a hot topic. People are very interested and it's a good book. So, Oh, well, I, I'm flattered to hear you say that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>